Good morning, church. It's always such a highlight to see all your smiling faces. Uh, Let's start this morning with a word of prayer, shall we? Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, Lord. I pray that your word will speak to us, that it will increase our affection for you, that it will remind us of who you are and what you've done through your Son. And so we just have so much gratefulness in our hearts for the grace that you've extended to us. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, we're, we're in our second part of our series, The Takeover, The King's Entrance, in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. So if you don't have a Bible this morning, would you raise your hand? Uh, Letty's in the back. She's got some Bibles for you. We want God's Word in front of you. And so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 3, starting verse 13, and we'd love for you to join us there. Uh, so just take a step back as we're getting back into Matthew. Uh, I wanted to just cover a little bit who Matthew was writing to. So in our passage today, in Matthew chapter 3, we are going to witness the start of the takeover or the public takeover. And Matthew's whole point in writing this gospel is Jesus is the Messiah. See, the only problem, though, with that is Matthew's readership was primarily Jewish, And their expectations of the Messiah was not Jesus, was not the the man come in human flesh to come save sinners. Their expectations for the Messiah was a military Messiah, one who would come with the strength of an army, with chariots and horsemen to overthrow the Romans, to give them political freedom. And so Matthew is going about systematically proving or showing how Jesus fulfills all the prophecies of old to then in this moment to be the living Messiah. So he is working on the expectations of the Jews because many of the Jews, when he wrote the gospel of Matthew, either would have seen Jesus or would have heard about him and they they saw his work and his life and they just, eh, and kind of moved on. He didn't fulfill their expectations of what a Messiah was. So he, it certainly wasn't their expectations. It was he wasn't the Messiah. And so Matthew is writing to change their expectations. And so we're going to see that in in chapter 3. So Jesus happened. He, He is fulfilling the prophecies in the Old Testament. Matthew himself. So you see at the very beginning of Matthew, we, I know we started at chapter 3. We do things, some things are backwards around here. We're going to go back and do chapter 1 and 2 in Christmas because it's more fitting with the season. But if you go back and read chapters 1 and 2, the first part of chapter 1 is the genealogy. And it connects Jesus all the way back to David and the Davidic covenant. And then it connects Jesus all the way back to Abraham, saying Jesus is in line in the house of Abraham and David. And then he points back to over six times, if you count, in chapters 1, 2, in the beginning of 3, over six times, Matthew goes, this is in, in Jesus' life, this is how the Lord has spoken it through the prophets. And he shows how Jesus is fulfilling that. So through all this, he is trying to change the expectations of his readers. And that brings us to today where it culminates. And Matthew is, is, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but he's answering this question today. How is Jesus the Messiah? Yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but he is going to give us three ways in which Jesus embodies that Messiahship. And he's, he's doing that in this section, in chapter 3, and that is where we're going to. So Matthew writes this gospel to show that the realities of what happened through Jesus are far greater 
than the expectations that were held before him, that Jesus is the Messiah. So last week, we got into chapter 3, and we witnessed um, John the Baptist. He was out in the wilderness, which it really was the wilderness where he was baptizing in the Jordan, where they think he was baptizing, was about four miles north of the Dead Sea. There is nothing out there. It is dry, brown, and hot. When I was there, you had to drive out of your way to get there. And then once you got there, there's nothing there. There's one little church just to kind of commemorate what, what, what they think took place in this spot. And then you got to walk another 15 minutes and you, you see this where a river or the Jordan used to go through. And they go, it happened right here. And so there is, we didn't see another soul the whole time. And so we see John baptizing. So you have John baptizing, calling people to repentance because there is someone far greater than him coming. And then you have the people who have come, gone out of their way to hear John preach, and as well as to, be, to repent and be baptized by John. And then there's a third party, the religious elites, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they're kind of over here on the side, and they're, they're wanting to show that they're, relig they're religious. They want to show that maybe they're repentant, but they don't want to get too dirty. And John even calls them out. We heard about last week where he calls them out on it. And this brings us to verse 11, which you can look, if you want to look back there with me, what John says. So that's Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, where he describes the difference between his baptism and what the baptism of the Messiah who's yet to come. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John was baptizing the people, calling them to repent and be baptized to ready their heart for what was to come. And the baptism that was coming, the one in the Holy Spirit and of fire, was to be the baptism of God and the one that was to prepare or cleanse their hearts. Fire throughout the scriptures is used as a cleansing mechanism. And so it's to be filled with the Spirit as well as to really do the work in their hearts, to solidify their hearts for God. Um, in thinking about this, it's a lot like we had a widow here at church uh, in 2011. She had a house. She lived in her house for over 50 years down at Shorecliffs Golf Course. It overlooked the golf course. She was right there, I think on hole, I think it's 13. It's the one with the big drop-off. And one morning she came out into her backyard and all of a sudden, her backyard was gone. It was 25 feet down below. In the middle of the night, it had slid down the hill. Her house and four other houses were red tagged, which means that they are unlivable, they're unsafe to live in. Get all your garbage, I mean all your stuff, and get out of the house. And so she had to collect all, we had a, a huge party of people coming and helping her get her stuff out of her house to move it so that if they were, because then it was the duty of the owner of the house, the responsibility of the owner to prove that it was livable. So this is a widow here at church. She's not going to do this, her work herself, right? She's not going to be able to stabilize her house. So she would have to get out, pay a lot of money to get someone from the outside to come in and stabilize her house. John's baptism and the baptism of the one who is to come, which we know is Jesus, is very similar. That widow, she could have cleaned her house. She could have cleaned the windows. She could have vacuumed the floors. She could have done the dishes, but it would not have helped her stabilize her house. 
She had to get outside help the same way we have to prepare our hearts, just like the widow had to get all her stuff out. We have to prepare our hearts for what the Messiah, what Jesus is going to do because we need outside help. Our hearts are red tagged. We can't do it on our own. And so this is where we're coming to today is John is calling for repentance to prepare your heart for what the Messiah is going to do, which we know to be Jesus. And so he gives us three ways in which Jesus embodies that Messiah today. So again, turn to Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 with me. And this is what it says. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, being John, consented. So Jesus comes to this baptism. He had to go out of his way. He probably traveled 70 miles from up near the Galilee down to where John was baptizing. And he's baptized, so you have Jesus who's found amongst the people, not the religious elites. We know from John's gospel, not John the Baptist, but John, the, the disciple John, we know that, John, that Jesus was found amongst the people, amongst the repentant sinners, not the religious elites, but amongst the people who were confessing of their sin. And so the first way that Jesus, Jesus embodies the Messiah is that he is a representative of the people. He represents the people. He knows them because he's from them. Because he has come from them, he, is, he knows their struggles, he knows their weaknesses, their likes, their dislikes. He's being found amongst them. He's not blindingly representing them, much like our politicians. He, he knows them, he's amongst them, he has learned from them. I mean, every election that we've ever had, you have two politicians who are going at each other and one always tries to paint the other as being out of touch, out of touch with society. All politicians are out of touch with society, but Jesus is the representative of the people because he has come from them. He grew up with them. And so not Jesus. Jesus knows who he's standing with. He knows what they're doing. He's come into their mess and he's found among them. And so Jesus is spotted by John the baptizer in this account. And so this is something very powerful. There's something very powerful in this act. I mean, think of like Princess Diana, right? She was a princess for the people, right? There's pictures where she would get amongst the people and touch them and talk to them and treat them like a person and the royal family would what? They would be standing off, walking down the center away from everyone else. But no, she, would, she was the people's princess. Or you can think of, I, I don't necessarily agree with all his theology, but the Pope, Pope Francis, right? As soon as he became Pope, what was one of the first things he did? He saw that Pope mobile that just looks like a big fishbowl that the Pope would ride down the street with. He's get rid of that. And he would go amongst the people and you see pictures of him touching people and praying with them and, and, and blessing them, which Popes of past would never have done. But there's something very powerful as, as these figures as they come down to the level of the people who, which they represent. But Jesus, it's even greater because he's not a monarch. He's not a Pope. 
Who is he? He is the Messiah, the representative of us all, the ones, the representative of sinners. And Jesus comes and he stands in solidarity. And which I, what I mean by that is he comes down to their level to su- give them support, to bring them ultimately to the salvation in which he offers. So he intentionally goes down to their level. And this is in direct contrast where you have the people in which Jesus is found in the midst of, which he came from the riches of heaven to come down to be in the mess of the people. And then you have who else over here? The Pharisees and the Sadducees who don't want to become unclean because then that would be unclean before God and that would mess up their whole look, right? The whole vibe that they got going on. And so there's a huge contrast and in this event of what's even going on. But Jesus doesn't do this. He has every right to be over with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but he's with the people. And this one thing that this points out to me is we're not very good representatives. Jesus is the best representative. We're not very good at representing other people, especially who have hurt us. And you can think of any argument that you've ever had when you've gotten together with someone to gossip. I mean, share your prayer request right? When you're describing your interaction and what you said is, well, it becomes almost like a fairy tale. Like your voice goes up. I was just asking them how their day was. And then as soon as you start describing what the other person said and whom you have conflict with, how is it? They almost sound like Darth Vader. They jumped all over me and they bit my head off and they said, no, right? I'm not alone in this. And how we represent people, we're very good at representing ourselves well and others poorly, especially those who have heard us. Jesus represents us well. He represents us the best. I mean, look at Isaiah 53, 12. We know that this is what Jesus is supposed to do because of what it says in Isaiah. It says, he poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And so he didn't only intercede for us, but he was numbered amongst us, representing us not poorly, but well, he was numbered with us. That says a lot about the Messiah of the world coming down, getting in our mess. And Jesus does the same with us, not just with the people at the baptism. I mean, he, he meets us where we are. He walks alongside of us as we struggle and we, we fight to become more like him, to try to follow him. I mean, this isn't just a blind representation. This is something he, he knows everything about us, but he is also knows everything. He has experienced us. He academically knows, but he also experientially knows. This isn't a superficial representation. This is one in which he is meeting us where we are, coming down to us. He is intentional in doing it. But Jesus, again, he was numbered with the transgressors. So back to our scene where John calls out Jesus. He says, what are you doing here? I... You need to be baptizing me, not the other way around. And Jesus says, no, to fulfill all righteousness, this must be done. This is in order to fulfill all righteousness. When I read that, when the first time I ever read that, I go, I don't know what this means. Why is Jesus having to be baptized at all? This is the perfect Messiah come in human flesh, and he needs this baptism of repentance? Well, when you look into it and you start reading about it, we have a God who is righteous. All his desires are righteous. All his doings are righteous. He is purely righteous. He embodies righteousness. 
And when Jesus says, we need to do this to fulfill all righteousness, what Jesus is saying, I am submitting the will to the Father because it is righteous, and I am completing his will to fulfill the Father's will. To start my ministry, I am going to do and represent all the people by being baptized alongside of them. So to complete the Father's will, he is baptized with us. Yet when you think about it, we worship a God who who loves this righteousness, so it's only in his will that it will be done, and which makes sense. So Jesus being baptized, what he's saying is, I'm not only going to become like whom I'm going to save, I'm going to stand with them, I'm going to act alongside of them, I'm going to act as their substitute, and this is my Father's will. So Jesus is our, repre- our representation. He, this is the inauguration of the takeover, which is an upside-down takeover. It's a takeover in which it would not go around the way that we would plan, because we know very well what a hostile takeover looks like, one with might and power and coercion. But no, Jesus is doing it the other way. He's coming, what, to serve, to represent us, to be amongst us, come from the start and the low to go up. And so first, Jesus is our representative And then what happens next is very powerful that we even have a stained glass window to represent it. All right, look at verse 16. It says, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. What a powerful scene. I mean, this is an event unlike anything else in the history of the world. This is only one of two times in which God is audibly heard speaking. I mean, John baptizes Jesus, which this is just how my mind works. So when we baptize around here, which we think baptism is very important for believers to be baptized. When we baptize, we are baptizing you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? And we dunk you and we hold you down for about 30 seconds and then we bring you up, right? So John, who doesn't even believe that he should be baptizing Jesus, right? He's probably nervous because of who Jesus, he knows who Jesus, he doesn't know fully who Jesus is or that he's going to be the Messiah, but he knows that Jesus is greater than himself. And so he's been baptizing people to repentance. So when he baptizes them, he doesn't say the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He goes, I'm going to baptize you into repentance. But no, this guy's perfect. I'm going to baptize... I don't know, that's just how my mind works. What do you you even do in that moment? Anyway, so John baptizes Jesus, and in that moment, he brings him back up, and the clouds part open, and you see the Spirit of God descend on Jesus like a dove onto his shoulder, and then you audibly hear God say, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. In this, I mean, just think of the power in that moment that God is so pleased with his son that he wants us all to know. I mean, I've been a dad for four weeks and I can't even imagine the pleasure in which God has in his son, but I know my son of four weeks, he is so cute, I cannot be more prouder of him. And there is no, I wouldn't give my son to you guys, no offense, he's a lot cuter than you guys. But God gave the very best of himself, his son, in which he he derides the greatest pleasure from to us. And he wants us all to know. 
And when we know this, when we know he's our representative and we know that he is the son of God, it should change how we think and how we act. And as the son of God, knowing that God has given the very best of himself to us, it should free us from, any, from fears and anxieties in which we hold on. We don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to show ourselves worth. It should allow us to enjoy our life in God, seeing the very blessings because of who he is and what he has given to us. Growing up, one of the most traumatic experiences I had was probably when I was about four years old. I was over at a friend's house, and we were in the backyard, and somehow the backyard door was locked. It got locked. It was shut, and we needed to get inside, and so we were banging on the back door for probably, it felt like an eternity, but maybe two minutes, right? I mean, it felt like a long time. We're banging on the door, and my friend's mom didn't hear it, and finally she came and let us in and let us go to the bathroom or whatever we needed to do, but from that experience, all growing up, my greatest fear it didn't matter where we were or what authority person I was with. It was with my parents or other family members or friends' parents. I always thought that if I couldn't see my parents or I couldn't see who was in charge, I was going to get left behind. So we could be at Disneyland, the happiest place on earth, and I wouldn't be having a fun time because I couldn't see my parents. My brother is the exact opposite. He would just be wandering around. He was looking to get lost. He, he was looking to be left behind. But I couldn't have fun until I, growing up, I realized, you know what? If I am lost, my parents are going to do everything in their power to find me. And in that realization, there was a freedom. There was a sense that now, you know what? I can enjoy where we are, if it's at the mall or if it's at a theme park or if it's even at church, that I'm not going to be left behind. And in the same way, when we realize that God has given us his very best, he's not going to leave us behind. And there is great freedom in that realization when we see it and believe it with our very eyes, or our very heart. And it frees us from, you know, this, this worship of our ego, of consumerism, or anything else the world tries to sell us. There's this American writer in the, in the 80s, he ended up passing. His name is Joseph Campbell, and he wrote, this, um, he wrote this saying, which kind of stuck with me. He said, if you want to understand what's most important to a society, don't examine its art or its literature. Simply look at its biggest buildings. Look at its biggest buildings. So if we're going to look at society as, as a whole and, and what they find what they hold on to for stability or for freedom, what is it? If you go to downtown LA or you go to New York and you see the tallest buildings, what, who is in those buildings? If you look up the list, it's pretty much four categories. It's banks, it's their trade centers, there's dwellings, so condominiums and hotels, and lastly, insurance. So as long as we're covered financially between the banks and the trade centers and we have our dwellings and we have the assurance that we will always be made financially whole, no matter what happens, we're going to be free, right? At least that's what it's telling us. But no, I mean, look back at 2008 when all that stuff was ripped away from many people. Were they free in that moment? Absolutely not. And so we need to find our freedom in something that can never be taken from us, never can be um, ripped from our hands. And we have that in God's son, and his name is Jesus. We have that in the name of Jesus. 
So back to our story. So for God was to say that he is fully satisfied in Jesus, I mean, we need to go, whoa, fully satisfied. I mean, if for God the Father to be fully satisfied in Jesus, that needs to trickle down to us, and we need to ask a question ourselves. Are we fully satisfied in Jesus? Is our heart, are we fully satisfied in Jesus? And really the next question is just as important because really the answer to that question for all of us is no. Otherwise we're gonna, be, we're gonna live perfectly as he was perfect. And the next question, why, is just as important because if you're an atheist, the answer is easy, right? I just don't believe in God. But if you are someone that does call upon Christ and, and you, you, maybe you've been a Christian your entire life, that's a little harder Maybe it's because of some pride in your heart that you haven't released to him. Maybe it's because you haven't gotten enough in his word, but there's some reason that's holding you back, becoming more like Christ, to be fully satisfied for some vice in this world is calling that you have a tendency towards. Because if we're fully satisfied in Jesus, that doesn't, that's meaningless. It's meaningless. So we need to be asking ourselves, are we fully satisfied in Jesus just as God the Father was fully satisfied in Jesus? And when not, why not? So first, Jesus is the Messiah. He's, he's the Messiah because he's the representative of the people. Second, because he is the Son of God, or he is God. And lastly, Jesus is the Messiah because he is our suffering servant. He is our suffering servant. Again, this is to look back at the prophecies. This gives us a clear picture of what God means when he's pointing to the suffering servant and what we mean when we say that. So we look back at Isaiah 42, 1, where it says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and I will bring forth justice to the nations." And so we see this fulfilled in this event in Jesus' baptism because the Spirit of God has come down and anointed Jesus. He had already, he was anointed, he already had the Spirit in him, but we see this, um, we see this public anointing of Jesus just like we see in the baptism. And Jesus is his Spirit, and what is he going to do? He's as the servant, he is suffering for our sake. He's saying, also in Isaiah 53, it says that he is going to bear the iniquities of the world. So not only is he our representation becoming numbered with the transgressors, he's the son of God, but he's bearing the iniquities of the world for you and for me. Just like, like he says, Jesus says in Matthew 20, 28, where he says, I have come to serve, not to be served. And there's no mistake in that, that Jesus is, he is our suffering servant. He has come to serve the nations, to bring justice to all countries, all, all peoples. And he's come to serve us at our greatest need. And see, this can get kind of mixed up for us because we are all served all the time. And we go to the bank, and there's a teller there asking how they can help us, what they can do for us. We go into a department store, Right? And you have someone breathing down your neck. How can I help you? And you're, I just want to look around. Right? We go to a restaurant, and the, the level of service is dependent on if the person is able to get you what you need, when you need it, and if it's how you like it. But that's not the kind of service that Jesus is offering to us. Jesus is offering to us a very different type of service. He is looking, he's, he is the adoptive parent giving the homeless child a home, welcoming him in. 
right? The child doesn't complain about a home. No one drowning complains about the color of the lifesaver thrown to him. If it's white or if it's that burnt orange color, some of them are, you know, are. No, but he, he is giving us exactly what we need in the moment when we need it. And so Jesus is our suffering servant. And he, it challenges us because when I hear that Jesus has served me at my greatest need, it challenges my covetous heart. When I look around and I see things that I want or I want to be in certain situations in which I'm not or driving a better car or living in a better house or whatever it may be, what I am really saying is that God, you have given me all that I need. You've, given, you've fulfilled my greatest need, but it's not enough. Because I, I really want that. And it's an indictment of God and his provision for us, not really saying anything about us, but it is saying about, are we satisfied in Jesus? And so it, it, it shows the where my heart is, because what God has provided, it is not enough. And as people of Christ, of one saying, you know what, Jesus is my representative. He, he is the son of God. He is my suffering servant. We need to be careful. We need to bring that to God and lay that upon the altar and say, Lord, take my covetous heart away from me because I want to be fully satisfied in you. And so this leads us to the three applications I see from this passage. First, we need to ask, are we satisfied, fully satisfied in the Son of God? Just as the God the Father was satisfied in his Son. Are we truly satisfied? And if not, or where not, why? Why not? And just the second is, just like Jesus right, lowered himself to, to sinners, to get into the mess to, to stand with them, to bring them up as they are repenting. We need to look, where can we do the same? Where in the, the spheres of our life can we get down with people, meet them at their greatest need in, in order to bring them to repentance in order in which they will see Christ shown and exemplified? Because we all have different areas in which we can do that in a much greater way. And then lastly, if you haven't been baptized and you call Christ as your savior, I would I want to call you to a baptism. Come talk to me, talk to Pastor Derek, Pastor Ty. We would love to talk to you about what baptism is and what it represents because just like Jesus was baptized, we see that as a huge proclamation of our faith. You, you're actually, to be a member here, you need to be baptized. We see it as important, as an important symbol that Jesus has given to us to, to accomplish. And so with that, would you please pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this event that took place 2,000 years ago in which you proclaimed your satisfaction in your son where he completed your will. Lord, help us to, to see Christ fully as our representative, to submit to the son of God and to dwell and to see him as our suffering servant. Lord, we, we just thank you for this time in which we can get into your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.